This week's episode of the Velo News Podcast, again brought to you by VeloSwap, the world's largest used bike expo. Folks, only two weeks away, Saturday, November 2nd, going on Denver, Colorado at the National Western Complex. Come and shop or sell your used bike gear. And I got some news. Uh, we have a sponsor that has come on, presenting sponsor at VeloSwap, and that is Saris. In fact, Saris is going to supply us with a bunch of cool uh, stationary trainers, and we are going to have a main stage there. We're going to be conducting stationary races throughout the day on Zwift. Uh, we have a PA announcer in Dave Toll who's going to be announcing these races. So if you want to come and win some fun prizes, stop by the main stage at VeloSwap, uh, get on one of these Saris trainers, and race your heart out and see what you can win. Again, VeloSwap. I love it. It is one of the best days of the year. You can buy all sorts of awesome used bike equipment, meet a bunch of other cycling fans. I will be there. So put it on your calendar, Saturday, November 2nd. Tickets are still available. Go to VeloNews.com. There is a banner on the top of the page. Click through and buy your tickets. Okay, let's get on with the podcast. Fred Dreyer here, VeloNews Podcast. Uh, we do not have Andrew Hood this week. Instead, we have two great interviews. I think you're going to enjoy both of them. The first is with author Daniel Davizet, who has written one of the, uh, I would say, the quintessential books on Greg LeMond about Greg LeMond's comeback. Uh, but Daniel's not going to be talking to us too much about his book today. Daniel has been involved with the plan to award Greg LeMond, the Congressional Gold Medal. You may have seen this on VelaNews.com a few weeks ago, but there are there's a group of lawmakers in the halls of Congress right now that have proposed awarding Greg LeMond the Congressional Gold Medal for his achievements in cycling. And the lawmaker who came up with the idea did so after reading Daniel's book. And he got in touch with Daniel and asked him all these questions, was just completely blown away by the story of Greg LeMond, uh, the, the man, the first American to win the Tour de France, won it three times and came back from a terrible hunting accident that nearly claimed his life. So we're going to talk to Daniel all about that. Uh, the second interview is with a an athlete who I have known through the lion's share of my history covering pro cycling. That's Leah Davison. Uh, Leah is one of the premier uh, cross-country mountain bike racers in America. She's been at it for a long time. When I came into the sport right after college, Leah was just starting her pro career as well. Uh, now we're both in sort of our mid to late 30s. She is the stateswoman of U.S. cycling, and she is gunning hard for the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo. Leah's going to take us throughout her career, uh, the ups and downs of her career, and wh what she's learned from her long career in pro cycling. But also talk to us about the push for 2020 because, you know, we've heard from some of the other top female mountain bikers, uh, Kate Courtney, uh, Chloe Woodruff, and uh, about the push for 2020. And it sounds like the gals are doing some uh, points chasing throughout the fall and winter and Leah is one of those athletes heading overseas to go do races in like Greece and Israel with the end goal of securing the maximum three spots for the United States for Tokyo. So I think you're going to enjoy that conversation as well with Leah. So we will be back at it with Andrew Hood 
next week. But please, I hope you really enjoy these interviews with Daniel Devizet and Leah Davison. Uh, my guest today on the Velo News podcast is an author who has written one of the definitive books on Greg Lamond. It's Daniel Devizet, and his book is uh, The Comeback, Greg Lamond, The True King of American Cycling, and a Legendary Tour de France. Daniel, though, we're, we could talk a bit about your book later on, but the reason I wanted to have you on this podcast is you penned a piece for VeloNews.com a few weeks ago about how Greg Lamond is actually up for the Congressional Gold Medal. There are lawmakers in the halls of Congress right now who want to honor a cyclist, oh my gosh, with a uh, fairly prestigious award and Daniel, I, I just want to. I, there's so many questions that I want to ask you um, about this whole thing. Uh, I guess just a first question for you. I mean, did, did this kind of like blow your mind when you heard that Congress wanted to award Greg this medal? Um, you know, I, I, I I'm a believer in in uh, in Greg. I've always thought that he was that his story is one of the most compelling stories in all of sports, not just in cycling. So. The idea that somebody uh, would have read this book um, and 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 thought to try to take his sort of fame and recognition to the next level, because that's kind of what happened. I I was thrilled, but I, I wasn't all that surprised. I mean, anybody listening to this knows how much Greg accomplished, and I I, I doubt anybody in your readership or listening audience would would think that he is anything less than an absolute icon of American sports, you know? <laughs> it's just one of those things where I feel like we as cycling fans are conditioned to always live in the shadows of mainstream American sports. So when some athlete is getting honored by ESPN or the government or teams are getting invited to the White House, we as cycling fans always look at that from afar and say, oh, wow, that's so nice. If only... TJ Van Garderen or, you know, Peter Stetna or Chloe Deigert would get that type of uh, hat tip to them. Uh, so I, I was kind of blown away when this happened, but let's get into it. There's a there's an interesting backstory here that involves your book, that involves a very specific lawmaker who read your book and got the idea for this. So Daniel, give us the backstory. How and why did uh, U.S. Congress get the idea to <laughs> award Greg LeMond the uh, Congressional Gold Medal? Okay, well, so, you know, I wrote this this book. I mean, yes, of course, for, for Velo News readers and for passionate LeMond fans and for passionate cycling fans and all those people who obsess on, like, steel bikes. But I also wrote it for a more broad audience in a hope that, that it would break out and that it would break Greg out of the cycling world just a little bit and maybe, maybe get him a little bit of the recognition that I felt he deserved. Okay. So you're always, when you write an article or a book, you're always hoping somebody will see it and say, yeah, you know, yeah. And, uh, I, I first heard from Congressman Mike Thompson of Napa and Sonoma, uh, around October. Um, I'd done this big book tour, uh, mostly on the West coast, you know, where they're crazy about cycling. And I came back from actually from California, Oregon, Washington state and Congressman Thompson reached out and said, hey, man, you know, uh, well, he didn't say, hey, man, but <laughs> he said, hey, I, I read your book. It's great. I, I love Greg. I, he knew who Greg was. I mean, I don't know how much he knew about him, but he I think he knew knew that maybe knew some of the story already. But he read the book 
and said, this, this guy is, a, is such, a, such an amazing story. Uh, there must be something we can do, you know, I, meaning him. I mean, I couldn't, I'd done what I could do. <laughs> so, uh, he talked, he talked about the idea of maybe could we, could, could, could Congress maybe put Greg on some kind of panel, maybe to maybe name an award after him or something for kids who did great stuff in athletics. Okay. So then a bunch of months passed. And then at the beginning of summer, the end of May, I think, uh, a staffer of Congressman Thompson's, uh, called and said they that Congressman Thompson had decided to put Greg up for this huge medal. It's, um, for people who are familiar with the, the presidential medal of freedom, that's the one that like, you know, Johnny Carson got and Andy Griffith and huge, huge people who transcend any one discipline. I mean, huge American icons, right? So the congressional gold medal is equivalent to that in stature. It's, it's Congress's version of that same medal. So it's a massive deal. We're talking Jackie Robinson, Jesse Owens, uh, Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas, huge names. And the first one was given to George Washington for like winning the war. Um, so it's a big deal. That's a good athletic achievement. <laughs> it's well, it's, and it tra- it's not just sports. It's in every discipline. Okay. So like, I think the, the, the group that are getting the medal at the same time as Greg or, or will put up for it. Uh, do you remember that, that movie about the African-American women who helped NASA? Hidden uh, figures. Yes. Yeah. They're up for a medal. I mean, okay. that's how big of a deal this wow. medal is. Yeah. And so, uh, the summer passed and, and they worked on the legislation. Um, I, you know, I offered some thoughts about what I felt Greg's overarching achievements were. I mean, the 89 tour, I, I, I wrote in, I think in Vela news that, um, and I've said elsewhere, every time anybody will listen to me that I think it's, it's the greatest comeback I think in all of American sports. I can't, nobody at any of my book talks could think of a, of an equal to Greg's comeback, his victory by eight seconds, um, you know, in Paris after having nearly died, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's unparalleled. Um, and Congressman Thompson is also thinking about his sportsmanship, mm-hmm. um, his, how many different people he influenced back in the breaking away era and, and up to, to the present day. I mean, that was such a, a wonderful, happy, innocent era of, of cycling and sports. And Greg influenced so many people, inspired so many people. And, you know, he represents kind of great American values, I think. Um, so I don't mean to drone on, but basically from there, uh, Congressman Thompson did the legwork of getting two thirds of the House. I think the House is what, 450 people or something, two thirds of them to support the bill. It's a super majority because it's a super important medal. Uh, and, and it passed the House in September. And, and I have some, we, you know, we live in D.C., so we have some friends who cover Congress and have covered Congress for like 30 years. And according to them, uh, it is kind of a, a what's the term pro forma thing that once the House has approved a measure like this, that usually the Senate will fall in out of collegial respect because this is not just Democrats, but also Republicans. Uh, Congressman Thompson is a Democrat. I think he's a little bit of a centrist across the aisle Democrat, but both parties, people of both parties supported it. And so, you know, I think he's feeling sanguine about its its prospects in the Senate, but who knows? Who knows? And that's where we stand. Bipartisan support these days, uh, as yeah. we know, <laughs> doesn't come easy. Oh, my God. <laughs> Yet Greg Lamont may be the man to unite the divided <laughs> uh, halls of American government. Um what was Greg's response when you brought this up to him? Hey, Greg, I've been contacted by a lawmaker in Washington, D.C., who feels that your story and you as a person are worthy of this very prestigious award. How did Greg, how did Greg take it? 
Well, um, the congressman uh, got through to Greg and, and I can't remember if it was I or somebody else who, so they, he broke that news or his aide broke that news to Greg. I know from interacting with Kathy that Greg is humbled and Greg is surprised and it's kind of rocked his world a little bit. Um, and heck, I mean, <laughs> how would it not? It's a huge, massive honor. Um, I, I mean, you, the, the statement that he sent to the congressman uh, said, I am truly humbled to be recognized for my career by the House of Representatives. Uh, cycling changed my life for the better. I've been proud to bring this great sport to so many across our nation. Um, you know, he, he, I, I'm sure I'm sure he was pretty rocked by it. But I mean, I felt like that. this was God. I, I think he and I felt the same way as I was as he was helping me, you know, as a source for my book, that he and I share this vision that he is a great, I, I think he's a great American story. He wouldn't say it that way, but I just think, and he knows how inspiring this comeback thing is, even though he was a participant and he understands the narrative, you know, uh, gravitas of that story. So I think he understands that, that his, that he's kind of a big deal. He's very, uh, modest about it, but I think he knows deep down that he's one of our great athletes, right? What was your process for the book in terms of your access to Greg, how many interviews you did, uh, how long of a period you had with him? Oh, yeah. Um, it was it was intermittent. Um, he's real, real busy, as I'm sure you, you'd guess, being one of the, you know, when I when I started on the book, Greg was in ascent in coming back from those years of ostracism from the cycling world. I, I think it was a year or two before that, that like the. Uh, a writer at the Star Tribune in Minneapolis had said, you know, Greg is trying to shake off after like 12 years of hell, you know, and, and sh sh you know, just reorganize his life and get back into it. So I, I caught him at a time when he was reemerging as a major figure in cycling, probably the major figure in American cycling, at least as a, as a sort of legend, you know. But um, yeah, he's a real busy guy. So I, I caught him when I could. Um, we interacted uh, in in person uh, uh, three, four, five different times, spread across like three, two or three different years. The 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 first, gosh, the first meeting was <laughs> I think at a Caribou Coffee in like Minneapolis or outside of Minneapolis. Uh, I, I first I interviewed Kathy for hours, and then the next day I interviewed both her and Greg. And the last meeting I had was just Greg at like a sports restaurant in Knoxville for like, I don't know, three, four, five hours. I don't remember how long it was. And he was just helping me with all these factual things in the book. And he was wonderful. You know, I, I think you and I were talking off offline about this, that Greg and Greg can be a little hard to reach sometimes. He's so busy, but when you get him, you've got him. I mean, he's all yours and, and he's so intelligent. I, I, I think his brain moves at the speed of like descent down a HC climb, you know, he's a fast moving brain and he's hard to keep up with sometimes. And he, and he tends to go off topic on occasion, but he's a great interview. And once you got him, you know, he's all yours. Now, Daniel, you have a background in writing about everything from education to breaking news, a lot of different topics outside of sports. I guess I'm curious, you know, here you are interviewing Greg LeMond, hearing these stories that he has probably told hundreds of times across the years. And I'm curious what your perspective was of him telling these stories. I mean, is he, um, did he see, is he tired of telling these stories? Is he finding new um, angles to focus on? Have they changed it all? Like, what was your perspective on Greg Lamont telling these, you know, these age old stories about the 89 tour? Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the ways that I operate with book writing is I try to get 
like we were talking earlier, you and I about like drinking from a fire hose, which is sometimes how reporting is. So I try to suck up everything that's ever been written about somebody. And so I read all of the prior books that mentioned Greg. There were a couple that were actually about him, you know, and then all the magazine articles, all the news articles, all the long form interviews he gave over the decades. So by the time I actually have him in front of me, um, I'm, I'm usually dealing with much more specific stuff. And so a lot of what I asked Greg was stuff that was more in the margins. It wasn't things that he maybe had told 5,000 times. Um, I was often drilling down to like stuff like, do you remember what your best man wore at your wedding, mm-hmm. <laughs> which he hadn't been asked that 500 times. And do you remember when you first ran into Roland Della Santa, you know, atop the mountain in Reno? And he hadn't been asked that question 500 times. So we, 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 we drilled pretty deep. And a lot of the stuff I was actually, he and I spoke about was more esoteric. Um, although again, there's, there's cycling fans and cycling writers who know so much about Greg that they would know exactly what we were talking about. But I, so I didn't ask him a lot of the obvious questions. A lot of those, I went back to like Sam Abt's coverage back in the eighties mm-hmm. and found out what Greg told him at the time it was happening. And I, I would use those quotes, fresh quotes from, from that era when I was writing about that era. So most of what, what Greg recalled about the 85 tour, the 86 tour, uh, a lot of that I just took from contemporary accounts in bicycling and yeah, Velo News, right? I can't remember what you were called in 1986, but whatever the, that brand was, you guys were, were writing about it. So I, I grabbed stuff that was contemporary accounts and used a lot of that in the book. It's funny. We have a big storage area here at the Velo News headquarters, and we still have many of those old copies of Velo News and Northeast Bicycle Racing News from that era. <laughs> yeah. And you can go back and read some of these interviews uh, with Greg and it's just, it's just great stuff. Um, you know, in your talks with, uh, Congressman Thompson, I'm curious, you know, it sounds like obviously the comeback, this 89 tour that really resonated with him, this story of overcoming adversity to win the race. What about Greg's later history? I'm curious what about, you know, specifically the, like you said, 11, 12 year span when he was ostracized from American cycling because of the tension he had with Lance Armstrong, because he was someone who raised his hand and said, I don't believe in Lance Armstrong because he's associating with Michele Ferrari. Um, do you think, was there any part of that story that resonated with um, Congressman Thompson? about, you know, about Greg and why he deserved this medal? Um, you know, I, I, I couldn't speak for him, but I would say that, that Congressman Thompson's bill, the actual legislation, which anybody can look up all you just, just type in Greg Lamont bill and you can read the text of it. It's, it's positive. So it's focusing on his positive achievements in cycling and, and his leadership role since his retirement. Um, he's a, a big advocate, uh, for survivors of male sexual abuse. Um, he himself is a survivor of male sexual abuse. Um, he's an advocate for competing clean. I mean, that's a positive thing that doesn't get into anything really negative. Um, I, I think that the bill is more kind of positively focused on all the great stuff he did um, in his career. It kind of centers on the huge, this huge comeback victory, which is, you know, one of the great stories in all of sports. Um, so you're not going to see much in the legislation about 
the 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 dark days that you just alluded to uh, of the of the 2000s when those two titans of cycling were kind of fighting you know like king kong godzilla you know whatever um that's not really in there uh, nor nor perhaps should it be because i i mean i feel like well my book gosh i think my initial my initial vision for the the Le Mans book that i ended up writing was more like more like a, a sling the badger uh if you're familiar with that book mm-hmm. and the 30 30 30 documentary it was more like I'm going to do the story of the 89 comeback. I, I think I, I may, might have initially thought I was going to stop at the end of 89. And then, you know, my, my editor and I thought about it, talked about it. And I guess by the time I was actually writing the book, I decided, well, I'm going to go all the way up to the present. And so, so that Greg V. Lance ended up being kind of the final act of the book. But it's not, I don't think it's necessarily germane to, the, to this Congressional Medal, if, that's, if, that's, if that makes sense. No, that makes sense. I mean, they want to, yeah, they're, they're, they're giving it, there's plenty to write. There's plenty to give Greg Lamond a medal about other than uh, what yeah, he went yeah. through during that 10 to 12 year time. Um, so with the regards to the medal itself, I mean, you said that this is a medal that's given to all manners of civilians who have achieved great things. Um, is there a medal award ceremony? Like what tends to to happen to these people? How are they honored? You know, that's a really good question. I, I've now written books about two people, not Greg, who have received the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the, the president counterpart, okay? The Presidential Medal is given to several people at once, and it's a huge ceremony. Um, you know, for example, Andy Griffith. I wrote a book about Andy Griffith and Don Knotts, and they're, it's kind of a, you know, a dual biography of great friends. Griffith, Andy Griffith got the, the presidential medal and there's a huge, there was a huge story in the Washington Post and went all out on the wires all over the country and, but several huge names got that all at once. I'm pretty sure the congressional gold medal is given, I think singly, individually, I, I'm embarrassed to say, I don't know for sure, but I, I like, I looked up a couple of recent congressional gold medal recipients and it looked like it was more like individual medals. So I have to picture that there will eventually be a ceremony wherein Greg and Kathy will be standing there. I mean, if I hope that he gets it and I think he will and some, and literally I guess either Congressman Thompson or somebody will pin the medal, you know, around his neck. But, um, I, I don't know. And I, I'm kind of superstitious. Uh, you know, you and I both have written about sports and in sports, there's a lot of superstition and I almost feel like that's not, we're not there yet. And so I'm almost afraid, afraid to think that far ahead. I just want to, do what I can to spread the word about his story and hope that he gets the darn thing, you know, and then I'll go from there. Will you be involved in the process at all going forward from this point? Oh, uh, gosh, I hope so. That's up to Congressman Thompson. I mean, he's been very generous to to acknowledge the fact that that my book uh, was was an inspiration for him to to put this medal forward. Uh I'm I'm absolutely thrilled. And I told Congressman Thompson I I, I actually inscribed a book to him. You know, I didn't it didn't get to him because of the congressional mail facility they sent it back, but I'm going to bring it to him in person. What I said in the inscription is that he he kind of took this whole thing to the next level because I wrote the book hoping to make Greg like a household word, word, you know, like he deserves to be. And I feel like this medal could finally do that. And so it's almost like just that one guy, this congressman reading the book caused the result that I wanted. That's why I wrote the book. And I feel like he might put Greg over the top to where he's really, really well known and, and not just among cycling fans, you know? Yeah, I think you brought up a good point in your first answer today, which is that the Greg LeMond story 
is perhaps the greatest comeback story in American sports. And I feel like, you know, we in cycling are very familiar with the Greg LeMond story. We're very familiar with Greg LeMond. And, and so we don't necessarily think um, through it through the lens of uh, modern American sports and think about it as as having that, you know, that level of importance. This guy almost died. He was not supposed to come back and win the race. He did in the closest race of all time. Um, you know, he was, he was shot. He was very close to his deathbed. Um, what's the most, when you just think about the Greg LeMond story in total, um, I mean, what's the most amazing part of it? What do you think is the quintessential part of the Greg LeMond story that, uh, can inspire Americans? Uh, you know, I, I try to think of, all the books I've written, I've tried to think of them kind of cinematically, like if it were a movie, what, you know, what would this, what would the acts be? What would the scenes be? And with Greg, there's just this remarkable number of, of, of obstacles that he had to cross. I mean, um, in terms of like, think of like high school English class and, and sort of the narrative arc, um, just think of the, the conflicts, the massive conflicts this, this guy faced and, and I'm going to go over four of them very quickly. The first is is uh, he, he was a, a victim of, of sexual abuse as a boy. He had to survive that, uh, overcome that. That was a massive obstacle to him even being a sentient, happy adult. So that's how he discovered cycling, I, I, I argue, was a lot of very serious cyclists have demons. <laughs> I mean, uh, how else do you ride hundreds and hundreds of miles? I mean, you've got to have something driving you. And that was one of the things driving Greg was just this he was a survivor. And so, and then he, and then he has this crazy, crazy idea of, of going to Europe and becoming a, a professional cyclist. And there's no Americans other than Jock Boyer who've ever even entered the Tour de France or anything. And he goes over there and just hands them their hat. I mean, he, he's so dominant and becomes so successful and just turns the entire establishment on its ear. So that's the second thing. Then you have the story told in, told in Slaying the Badger where you know, he goes up against all of France and Bernardino, the greatest cyclist of his era, and 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 just pulls out this amazing come from behind victory. Uh, and that is a whole nother story. That's a great story that was very well told by a, a Scotsman, uh, Richard Moore. OK, so then you have him nearly dying in this hunt, hunting accident. And then, you know, looks like he's going to bleed out. I mean, he, he probably would have died if there hadn't been a, a, a California Highway Patrol chopper in the area that stopped at this remote ranch and picked him up and took him to the hospital, but he survived. And they said he probably wouldn't ride a bike again. And then he, you know, he just claws his way back. If there's one thing cyclists can do, it's endure pain. <laughs> so he endures pain and just fights back into the Peloton and enters races that he can't finish and then finishes races that he can't win. And then finally in the, in the Giro, the Giro d'Italia of 89, he finally kind of recovers his form in a time trial near the end of the race and finishes, I think, second. And then like people like Laurent Fignon in that moment and Guimard realize that he's back. And <laughs> this would all be in the movie, right? If there mm -hmm. were a movie of this. I mean, and you can just keep going. Uh, he, he, he faces off against EPO at the, at, the, at, the, at the end of his career, along with Fignon and Andy Hampson and the other heroes of, I would say, relatively clean cycling. And they all fade because the Peloton's getting faster and faster and friggin' faster. All these domestiques, are beating Fignon and beating Le Monde, men they could have easily, easily defeated five years earlier. And then he, you know, goes off into the sunset and then, and then the whole Lance thing explodes. And that's an, yet another 
obstacle, uh, an, an yet, an, yet another a conflict that he spends a dozen years uh, overcoming, and he finally overcomes that. So that's why this is a it's a roller coaster ride of a story, and that's why it's a good story and why it's a good book. I think. I mean, at least I, I don't know how good a job I did writing it, but the story is amazing. I mean, it's just amazing material. Well, when will we find out whether or not Greg gets this award? What's the timeline? That's a really good question. Um, I am given to believe that it's going to be a matter of months. So I'd be kind of surprised if he's going to get the medal. I, I don't think it'll be like years from now. I would think it would be a matter of months, maybe a few months. It still has to go to the president's desk. And then we get into a whole nother, you know, uh, I don't know what calculation. Uh, President Trump, uh, I don't know what he know, what, what, how much he's into cycling, but we had this tour to Trump 30 years ago. So he clearly was into it then. And that was in Greg's era. So that'd be another whole nother fascinating round of questions is what happens if and when it reaches the president's desk. <laughs> well, I think all of us will be watching here at Villeneuve because I, I, am, I am just speaking for Villeneuve's readers here. I obviously think it would be so cool if uh, Greg LeMond won this medal um, and that we here in American Cycling had our own congressional gold medal to, to hold <laughs> up. I mean, it would be feather in our cap. You know, I want to see someday, you know, Ron Howard making a movie of Greg's life and millions and millions of people going to see it and kind of celebrating the real life breaking away. <laughs> well, Daniel, I really appreciate you coming on the Velo News podcast this week to tell, uh, talk to us all about your book and all about this uh, fun project. Again, today, my guest was Daniel Divise, author of The Comeback, Greg LeMond, the true king of American cycling and a legendary Tour de France. Daniel, thanks so much. Hey, thank you. It's been a blast. Fred Dreyer here. I am really psyched for this next guest in the Villainous Podcast. I feel like this is something we've been like circling around totally for a long time. Yeah. Uh, it's Leah Davison. Um, Leah needs no introduction. You're kind of the queen of American mountain biking right <laughs> oh, now. Why, thank you. The elder stateswoman of, yeah. of American mountain bike racing. Yes. Um, you raced for the Show Air 2020 team. Yeah. Two-time Olympian. Yeah. Multiple-time national champion. Yeah. What else am I missing in there? Little uh, Bella's co-founder. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very important. That's a big one. Two world championship medals. Two world championship yeah. medals. But who's counting? Who's <laughs> counting? <laughs> but what, what, why I wanted to have you on this podcast, well, there's a number of reasons, but like, Leah, like we're, we are of the same generation. This is kind of like, totally. it's kind of like seeing like an old friend from college. <laughs> it's a reunion. Seen. It's a reunion. It's a reunion of um, sorts. <laughs> Leah, you were you, under 23 national champion my first year yeah. when I came into Vela News and came on the scene. I would have been like, oh, five. Yeah. Exactly. And so the first part of me covering pro cycling in the mountain biking scene corresponded with like you getting your first pro contract. Yeah. Racing in Europe. Yeah. Like we're on kind of a similar trajectory. Totally. Yeah. And so now it's 15 years later. <laughs> we old. We're old. We're the old. We're experienced and we're wise. And so, Hopefully. I mean, your career has taken lots of different twists and turns. Mm -hmm. You've had these great high moments. You've had, yeah. I would imagine, Really challenging moments, yeah, too. Yeah, definitely. We should get into it. Let's do it. I'm just going to get it. Dive head first. Uh, before we get into the past, though, let's talk about the present. Um, mm -hmm. It is the fall of 2019. Yeah. We have an Olympics coming up. Yeah. Um, you are hoping to make your third Olympics. 
what has to happen in order for, for that to happen? Yeah. Um, well, a couple things. <laughs> there's two opportunities to qualify for the Olympics. So the first one, well, there's a couple, but um, the first one already passed. It was the World Championships yeah. in Mount St. Anne, and that would have required a top eight. Um, I came in 11th. Kate came, came in fifth. So she pretty much punched her ticket. Yeah. And then um, the second opportunity is the World Cup opener next May in Nova Mesto. And that's also a top eight there. But the the different thing about this Olympic qualification is that these um, different qualifying races are ranked. Like, so Nova Mesto is the priority. So essentially, if um, three of us, like uh, Chloe, Aaron, and myself, came in like second, third, and fourth in Nova Mesto, that would like that's prioritized over Kate's fifth. Mm. Um, so it's kind of crazy. I like call it the hunger games of yeah. Olympic qualification. What do you think of it? Like, what was your opinion when they announced the qualification earlier this year? Yeah, I, I thought that, um, I thought the two races they picked were great, you know, and I was especially excited about them for me because those are two courses that I love and I definitely thrive on like the Nova Mesto course. So I was, um, psyched about, that the whole um, prioritization of, of events and the fact that it's only one event in 2020, as opposed to the past two Olympic cycles, it's been like the first three World Cups, but that was the only way that they could do it because of the World Cup schedule. Mm -hmm. So it feels a little bit um, pressure inducing, <laughs> like that aspect of it is you only got one shot, Eminem style, <laughs> one opportunity. So, um, but I think they did a good job. I mean, there's always going to be critics of Olympic selection criteria, Olympic selection. It's like the most, um, yeah. It's contentious. Yeah, it's very contentious. No one's ever 100% happy. Yeah, you're you're making dreams and you're breaking dreams. So. We, we've talked about this with uh, Aaron Huck and with Chloe um, Woodruff about this too, how it does seem better than the old, old way, which yes, was like you yes. had to chase UCI points. Oh, it was ridiculous. All over the place. Everyone came into the Olympics and was totally smoked. Fried, yeah. yeah. I mean, if we're kind of chasing UCI points, like it's a priority because of the nation's ranking. Right. So we're currently ranked second and um, we're dividing and conquering as like a group of four of us U.S. American ladies to make sure that we stay ranked second in the, or in the top two so we get three spots. Because even though there's four of us going for it like we all it all benefits all of us if there's an extra spot so um chloe and aaron are in israel right now and <laughs> they're racing the israel epic they just actually won the first stage so that's great it's a four-day stage race and they'll go to the japan test event straight from there i'll go to the japan test event so will kate and then after the test event i'll go to greece to do two like four-day mountain bike stage races so wow. yeah we're we're hitting it. Like, we're making sure to put everything in our favor to get those season, three spots. The season is not over for you. Nope. It's still, it's still going. So, yeah. Um, what, you know, how do you feel about that? I've talked to a couple of the other writers about that, about um, this year in general and the push to get the maximum three spots. Yeah. Which yeah. is requiring all of you to do well in the World Cup circuit, which you yeah. all did. Mm -hmm. But now it seems like there's a little extra required. Yeah. 
which is traveling like how do you how do you feel about it i i'm actually motivated like i'm all in for this mission and it also benefits me to get uh more uci points you know it helps with star position and i need to be in the that top 40 you know come nova mesto to do the short track yeah. uh, to get a great star position um you know, knock on wood, if I make the Olympics, then it's a good start position for the Olympics. So I, I see it as putting a lot of things in my favor and I'm actually really motivated. I mean, this season went well. I ended, um, I ended West Virginia, like, uh, the last world cup and I was psyched, you know, I got a top 10. I feel like I'm back. I've, I didn't have a great past two seasons. And as my coach puts it, he's like the past two seasons, you know, not 2019, 2018, 2017. He's like, you got, you're like, it's like you're making a turkey dinner and you got like whiffs of the turkey and it like smelled good. And that was motivating. But like this season, especially in West Virginia, you licked the turkey. But you didn't, like, these are literally, this is verbatim. Um, and he's like, but you didn't like you haven't gotten to eat the turkey yet, which is true. Like, I know I can be on that World Cup podium. I have the fitness like to be up there in the mix. And I was more in the mix, but I just got to lick the turkey. <laughs> so, like, it's actually really motivating. Getting ready to take a bite. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What was it about those two seasons then? 2017, 2018. Yeah. I, I remember there were some, some injuries in there, but like. Uh, what was it and how did you keep motivated through it? Yeah. I mean, how long do you have? <laughs> it's going to turn into a therapy session. <laughs> That's what we like to do. Yeah, exactly. we're, we're diving deep. Yeah. Um, no, I think it was a lot of um, factors just combining. Actually, I, I just did um, like a really meaningful interview with Jen C and I kind of like broke it down with her. Yeah. But uh, after 2016, I was like coming out of that season just flying like an on such a high I'd got a silver medal at the world championships at uh, Nova Mesto before the Olympics and then I came in seventh in the Olympics and I and I was racing for specialized and I thought yeah I'm like all set you know second in the world and then they called me and they said if you want to pursue another Olympic cycle and race world cups like you need to look elsewhere and I was devastated so I think I was shocked too I mean totally like blindsided so it there's a lot of heartbreak around that and like kind of dealing with um, like feeling not enough, you know, like what, what else did I need to do, you know, to, to stay on that team. But that's just the nature of bike racing and teams and everything. And then um, I was like, I was psyched to get on cliff pro team, but uh, that environment wasn't the best for me. I, I, I love the, um, the, all my teammates from Cliff Pro Team. They were amazing. I had so much fun, but, um, it was just a very pressure, uh, you know, focus on results, pressure producing environment. And I did not jibe well with it. So yeah, I had to make a change pretty much. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I was going to ask you, I was going to ask you this later in the, in the podcast, but it's a good segue into that now, which is that, I mean... When I was writing about you, you were on the Trek VW team. You, yes. you have raced for all the different teams <laughs> yeah. out there in yeah. North American uh, mountain bike racing. Trek VW, Specialized, mm-hmm. Luna Cliff. Now you have um, this a program. It's sort of an individual program. Yeah. Well, it's under, you know, Show yeah. Air Team 2020, the road team, but I'm like the mountain bike branch. Yeah. What have, what have you learned about the value in which – pro teams and pro sponsors place on 
they're athletes. Yeah. Uh, both the good and the bad. Yeah. What, where does the value really lie? Oh, that is a good... I mean, I wish I truly had the answer to that because then I feel like I would have a team every year, you know? Like, there wouldn't be so much movement. But I I think it's an ever-changing landscape. It's Uh very dynamic, especially now in the past couple years. You know, you've kind of seen... In the beginning when I was getting into it, it was kind of at the end of the heyday. And it was, you know, mountain biking was cross-country racing and downhill racing on the Norba circuit. That was it. And then it diversified. And you have marathon racing, 24-hour racing, enduro, Super D before enduro. And, and I feel like it just spread out, you know. So there was no longer like one venue, one race series, you know, like the Euros used to come over and race the Norbas. Like they were huge. When I was first pro, there was like 70 women on the start line and Outdoor Life Network was like televising it. So I felt like back in the day, you know, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, like if you showed potential, which I did, and you got great results and you could... You know, you could talk to fans, you could talk to people, Um, you had a good chance of making it, you know, and now with the, you know, the rise of social media, we have to be us as professional athletes have to be our own, like you have to market your brand pretty much. And that's a whole nother thing. I mean, it's a whole nother job pretty much. And so I think there's value put on that still. I think there's obviously value put on results. Um, and the fact that if you're, okay, you're a a good representative of the brand, Mm -hmm. especially if you're female, you know, like you definitely need to have that aspect. You need to have personality. Uh, there's definitely different standards for being a male cyclist and a female cyclist for sure. And, uh, yeah, it's just like a ever changing mixture, you know, now, like if I race gravel, would I have a better chance at getting a job maybe you know like that's a now new growing niche of the sport so yeah let's i don't know (laughs) let's say 23 year old leah davison was getting into the sport yeah right now yeah what advice would you have for 23 year old leah davison coming into today's mountain bike scene. Yeah. I mean, I think I would still have the same advice. Like I have mentored um, some of those youngins like coming up and you still have to work hard. Like you have to, you have to be um, persistent. Mm-hmm. Like you can, there's going to be highs and lows in the sports. You're going to, it's mountain biking. Like you're going to get injured. You're going to get sick. You're going to have off season. So to make it this far, like you you have to be tough. Like you have to be persistent and like persevere through those lows. And I think you need to be, um, you need to be good on social media and you need to like dive into that. And then you also still need to be making connections. Like you need to be meeting as many people in the industry as possible, making connections, throwing yourself out there. Uh, but You know, I'm still a big believer that if you work hard 
and and try your best in every race, every you know, every day, every training session that it will work out. Like things will eventually line up for you. It's just, do you have the patience, Mm -hmm. you know, for it to line up? And I think USA Cycling is doing a great job providing that stepping stone for those younger racers, like the U23 racers to get World Cup experience, to get a chance to like, you know, punch those results in to maybe get on a bigger team. Because you can't, like the the national the U.S. racing scene right now is it's uh, I don't know it's just not there's not as many opportunities. The old days of like big team trailers pulling up to yeah. the parking lot of a venue and semi trucks and all of these riders yeah. and people holding umbrellas for you at the start line of a race mm-hmm. and um, yeah the the accoutrement that that everyone seemed to have back in 2004, 2005, 2006. Yeah. It's gone. Yeah. Like I would walk around the venue to all the team managers with a resume. Yeah. Like, can you do that anymore? I don't think so. Are there team managers? Yeah. I I know. That's the question. I had that question for Chloe and she's like, I'm my team manager. Yeah. Chloe's her team manager. She's like, I, you know, and, and then Chloe was, she was very, um, I wouldn't say critical, but, you know, when we talk, you know, here she is, like, she was a couple weeks away from winning the national championship. Yeah. She's having these great World Cups. And she still was kind of like, ah, I, you know, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. You know, kind of like, yeah. it's tough. I mean, it seemed yeah. like it, it took it took a bit of an emotional toll on her. And oh I, would, my God. I can't even imagine yeah, managing yeah. a team. Yeah. But I mean, I can't even imagine just being in the sport as long as she has and as long as you have. Yeah. And, and not having those moments. Yeah. Where it's an emotional struggle. Yeah. Oh gosh. And when yeah. you're so segue to the next question, like what was the what was the low moment? Oh, there's been a couple, <laughs> like of my entire career, or like uh, let's say of the recent career. Yeah. Uh, and how'd you get through it? Yeah. Um, you know, there was a couple of low moments. I mean, definitely when I got that call from Specialized and and they were saying, you know, like, you were pretty much not going to resign you if you want to go for the Olympics. And I was like, what? I'm ready to, like, I'm ready to be world champ, you know, like I'm right at the edge there. So that took me like a while to come back from. And then, yeah, in those next seasons, I would say... The World Cup opener that in the 2017 season, like I would, I was able to, in all the other seasons, to come off of Nordic skis in the spring, you know, not do so great in those U.S. Cups, like in March, like I would kind of race myself into shape, but I got sick, like I got sick at team camp. And so I wasn't afforded that opportunity to like get myself in shape before the first World Cup in Nova Mesto. And I got my butt kicked and I just was like back in the hotel or the house. And I was on FaceTime with Frazier, my wife, and just bawling like, like, oh my gosh, like what, what just happened? I, I got my butt kicked. So, you know, what are we going to do? And then, um, yeah, like the 2018 season, there were so many moments where I was like, should I just retire? (laughs) Like I'm here I am like working as hard as ever. And this is just not coming together. Like I'm in 20 something and just like felt like I'm banging my head against the wall, but I still like, I have unfinished business, you know, like I did not want to leave the sport just 
on a low note. I, I knew I had more in me and I, yeah, I just need to really prove to myself, which I did this season. Like, yeah, I can still do this. Like I know how to race my bike. I'm good at it. And I still have the goal to go for the Tokyo Olympics. So like I'm all in and it took a lot to like kind of recover from those moments. But Frazier has been like a huge support in that. And, um, I also did a lot of body work. So I did like cranial sacral work, Mm -hmm. uh, which is energy work. And, um, it may sound like woo woo to a lot of people, but it really helped me heal from like all these experiences and kind of like get that energy that was stuck in my body, like out, like I could not breathe that well. Cause I just felt like such the weight of like, you need results. You need, you don't have the results. You're not enough, you know? And, um, we changed everything, like everything with my coach, like the approach to the season. I like got rid of all my kits, like and everything with like negative energy involved. I just like chucked it all in a pile and got rid of it. I like chopped my hair. Like I was like, we are starting fresh. Like everything is going to change. And, and then just getting the new energy of, and the support with show air 2020, that was, that was huge for me because to have someone like really have a vote in confidence of me. Like, yeah, you can do this. You did it in 2016. Like you still got this, you know exactly what you're doing and we're going to support you really out of the goodness of our heart. Like, cause we believe in you. And that's, that's exactly what I needed. Like the, the jumping off point. Yeah. To the season. When, where, where within that journey then does, uh, the 2020 Olympics sit? I mean, is it an all or nothing thing? Like what's your mentality around it and you are pushed to qualify? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's all or nothing. Like I am all in to qualify and it's going to take a a different approach again, like from this point to May, because that's the most important buildup because like, I got to qualify, you know, at that first World Cup opener. So, yeah, I I am going for it. Like, I kind of see it like this is my last shot at the Olympics. and like, let's do this. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, uh, you know, I'm trying, you know, thinking back to, to the old days. Um, you know, Dunlap was still racing. Yeah. And Dunlap was like the queen of American yeah. biking. She totally. had been a world champion. She won the World Cup. She was this sort of shooting star of American cycling. And mm-hmm. then um, we had a period in which yourself and Georgia Gould and Heather Ermiger and, you know. Willow. Willow. Yeah. Just like this great generation of American mm-hmm. mountain bikers always sort of contending for World Cup wins, yeah. contending for worlds. Yeah. And then Kate Courtney comes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I had Kate Courtney on the podcast a couple weeks ago, and I'm still kind of blown away by what she's been able to accomplish. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> um, at what point in your experience with Kate did you think, oh, holy, holy S-H-I-T, mm-hmm. like, we may have a like shooting star yeah. in our hands. Yeah. It's, I don't know. I don't think there was like a moment, you know, Kate and I were great friends. Like I spent um, many years pretty much sharing a bed with her in Europe. Like, and we were like a little team, like unspecialized. And so we spent a lot of time together and I definitely knew like, 
she had the potential. Just like I know all of these like you two, three women yeah. that we have racing for the U.S. right now for sure have that potential. Like, and it's just kind of like a magical mixture of things happening and hard work paying off and making the right decisions. And so as like in 2016, going into those new seasons, she got a new coach, like, and then I thought like, oh, this is on, like, she's gonna, she's gonna do well. And I knew like she had the potential to be a top 10 racer. And then, okay, maybe like some years down the road, you're going to get on World Cup podiums. And there's kind of like a natural progression. But bam, she just like went in 2018 from getting consistent top 10s to to winning worlds. And it just shows that like, we're all so close. And I think that we, we place limitations on ourselves. Like, yeah, I'm like a top 10 rider, but man, to make it to that next step of like winning world cups, it still seems like kind of far away, but it can happen. Like, and Kate is great living proof. It's, it's actually very inspiring that like, yeah, you can win world champs even if you've never been on a World Cup podium. And then she comes out this season and backs it up, you know, because there's all the haters saying like, oh, it's a fluke. And like, no, it's not a fluke if you win world championships, like especially against a field like this. Like, You're not the first person to say that. Yeah. Chloe said that too. Yeah. Which was basically like, uh, we all, since we're Americans, we race against each other a lot. And we've raced against each other a lot. Mm -hmm. And we all kind of measure ourselves against each other. Yeah. So to see Kate win worlds and then to be like, you know, in some of these races, like, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm right there with her too. Yeah. It's not like she's a half a lap ahead of everybody. Yeah. It's like exactly. you know, we're battling and fighting. And to then see her do so well this year and to still be like, yeah, I'm kind of right there with her. Uh, it's almost like Kate's success oh, yeah. showed people like – at least the other North American women or American women, like what, what's possible. Yeah. And that happens. I mean, people, it happens in generations, right? So you're talking about the generation before Kate, which I was involved in and I'm like willows racing at the front of world cups. And I remember this distinct moment that it was her first world championship podium. And I think she got a bronze or a silver or whatever. And I, I was not like selected to that elite team, but I'm like checking updates somehow. I don't even know how, <laughs> like with social media still around. And I was sailing like out on a lake and I heard that like she had got, gotten a world champs medal. And I was like, game on. If Willow can do it, I can do it. So like success definitely breeds success. And that is what like planted the seed for me. Really? Like, yeah, I race with Willow all the time. So like I can do what she does. And, and so Kate's like doing the same thing for like kind of this new generation of racers. Would you do anything differently in your career? Oh boy. I know hard pivot. <laughs> yeah, it's like great, a 180. Very thoughtful uh, answer there. Uh, so, what would you do differently? Stumped. You know, they say hindsight's twenty twenty, but I'm not sure. Would I do anything different? I don't think so, actually. It's good. Yeah. I think it just progressed on a path that, like, made sense for me and stuff that I was ready for. Maybe I would take more risks. Mm. Yeah. I would take more risks in, in races. 
What does that look like? Just like going, taking it, a gnarly line? No, it looks like going crazy, like oh, going from the start. Hard. Yeah, because yeah. that that's a you know that's a weakness of mine. I get into the race, and then I have like negative lap times, and then I usually end up having the like one of the fastest last laps. And so, like, if I was in the race from the beginning, like I would be racing for the win, not like you know top three or top five. So I would. Um, yeah, I would. I think I would take more chances because you're not going to win unless you take some kind of risk. Do you envision yourself taking a chance at Nova Mesto? Yes, hundred yeah. <laughs> percent. That's what it's going to take. Yeah, you know, and that's like if I, it was kind of my um, approach in Rio. Like if I have a clean race and I truly leave it all out there then I'm going to be happy with, with the results. You know, like if I, I didn't have a mechanical, like I just, I didn't have what it took on that day to like get a medal, but I was, oh, so close, mm-hmm. you know, but you can't really do anything more if you don't, if you've done your best. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Another hard pivot. Let's yeah. talk Lil Bellas. Okay. Uh, we've written about Lil Bellas in the magazine and on the site before. Um, if you're not familiar, that is the uh, junior women's cycling program is a good way to put it. But yeah. Getting girls on bikes. Yeah. Program. Pretty much. And you founded this alongside your sister. Yeah. And um, give us a status update. Like what's the size and scope of Little Bellas in 2019? Yeah. We are thriving. I mean, it's like taken off really just in the last in the last four years. So we have um, an ever expanding list of chapters around the U.S. So I believe that we have 14 chapters now. And um, this year we got 1,200 girls on bikes, Mm. unique girls. So that's pretty amazing. And we have wait lists, you know, around the country, definitely in the Colorado area. It's a thriving, like, hotspot for Little Bellas, of course, because there's such a deep cycling culture. But we also have chapters where there's not that, you know, not that cycling culture. And we we kind of build it from the ground up. You know, we get a, a lady that says, yeah, I want this. Like, and we make it easy, you know, for we do pretty much all the legwork to have a chapter. Mm-hmm. And we have an amazing network of volunteer mentors around the country, about 500, and that work with um, each of our chapters of Little Bellas. And we have, um, you know, the chapter leads or the program leads. And then we have um, kind of these regional coordinators that coordinate the different regions like California, Colorado, Utah, you know, the South, Southeast, the Eastern, like the Vermont Vermont, everything we got going on in Vermont. So it it's going so well. So my sister is the executive director. We have a full board of directors. I'm on the board. Um, we have a small and mighty staff and we're getting chapter applications like crazy. It's been great. When I get hit with the question, which I do a lot these days. Yeah. Um, how does the sport grow women's, women's cycling? Yeah. Um, and what you know the the inequalities in cycling and there are glaring inequalities yes, in cycling yeah. we all agree on that um and you know from the from the professional end down to the participation end down to the you know you look at just participation numbers and it's more, more yeah. men than women yeah um but whenever people ask me about that question I bring up Lobellas. Yeah. And I say Thank you. <laughs> and it's not just the program but it's to me the central concept which is community yes. around bikes. Yeah. Because like I've interviewed so many young boys and girls or like pros talking about how they got into bikes. Yeah. And like, 
you hear it with boys where they're like, yeah, I was just a weirdo. I went and rode my bike by myself. Yeah. And like with young girls. That's not going to work. It's not going to work. Yeah. Like who's going to be like, oh, hey, my 14-year-old daughter wants to go on a four-hour <laughs> yes. road ride yeah. by herself. Terrifying. No. Yes. And, and and yet, like, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these guys, like, you, you hear that. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, okay, maybe there was some community or a junior team or some opportunity. But, like, at some point, yeah. there was a period in their lives where they, like, kind of had to do it by themselves. Yeah. And, like, being letting a 14, 15-year-old boy go ride a bike by himself, like, there's just, you know, whether it's right or wrong, yeah. there's a little... Culturally. Culturally, yeah. there's less risk involved. And so, with Little Bellas, it's all about, like, creating yep. a community where girls meet other girls who ride bikes. Yeah, exactly. Like, they want to hang out with each other. And yep. I've attended some Little Bellas events. They're great if anyone's nice. listening and wants to ever... I mean, I can't... I cannot endorse Little Bellas. Thanks, more Brad. That. That's not a question. I just wanted <laughs> to say that. I just wanted to tell you that. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, you you pretty much have the program nailed. It's, it is about creating a, a community around bikes and the really great... Um, kind of side benefit that we did not expect when creating Little Bella's was the all-encompassing community. So there's a lot of different levels. Obviously, we're focused on a community where it's a safe space and for like these young girls to get into a tough sport. I mean, it's it's not an easy sport to learn, but we it's not a clinic. Like we disguise um, learning skills in games and like fun activities, and we ride, you know. Um, but then there is like this whole another level of community, which is we're the mentors. So you have these older females, like they're you know in their twenties, thirties, forties, and they're looking for other rad women to ride mountain bikes with because it's hard to find each other. So they're like connect- connecting, and it's like a rad group of women. And then you have another layer, which is we're getting families out on bikes. So we have these little bellas learning how to shred, and they go back to their mom or dad and they're like let's go for a bike ride and so so now mom or dad needs to learn how to ride like they need to learn how to ride better and these little bellas are getting like the entire family out on bikes so it's just it's been so wonderful and it's really it's really meaningful you know it brings me a level of happiness and satisfaction to my mountain bike career that i feel like a not not a lot of pros get to experience you know it's i being a professional cyclist i turn my you know feet around in circles really fast like I try, that's what it is you know it's a very it's a selfish pursuit and it's a great pursuit but um you can use it as a platform to empower these women like that's amazing. And I feel like that is really my mission. Like that's why I was put here on earth is to, to use cycling and where I've taken it as a platform to empower and inspire these women to like get outside, let's get moving. Uh, you get in your body, like feel strong. And that's why I was very excited, um, last year to launch our little Bella's pro ambassador program. So it gives, you know, it just gave some structure around what was already happening, which was, I would get all my, 
pro female mountain bike friends and I'd be like, hey, come over and have a question and answer session with our little Bellas at Sea Otter or with your local chapter here in Colorado or wherever you live. So then it gave me a chance to, you know, put some structure around that. And um, it gave these pros more of a platform to like empower these local girls. And, and these girls can look at them and say, oh my gosh, like I went to the same elementary school as you or, and I ride the same trails as you and they'll see them riding around and training. And it's like a really powerful connection to make. And plus, like I could not clone myself <laughs> into, like we have 25 pros signed awesome. up. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And plus it gives... Uh, you know, like the, I mean, it's a basic thing to say, but it's like, it gives them someone to look up to who does this, yes. who does their activity. Exactly. Like, oh, you can, I can, I could do that when I'm 25. Yes. I could be a professional. Yep. I could be an Olympian. There's all these, these, op, you know, possibilities and opportunities. Yeah. If you keep riding a bike. Yeah. You got to show them. Well, chapeau to you. No, <laughs> Thank I mean, you. Lola's has been, you know, it's, we did that, Spencer did the Spencer Paulus and wrote the yeah. teacher a few years back and just looking at it and following it since then. I mean, between that and NICA, it's like there's really positive stuff going yes. on in American mountain bike racing. Yep. Um, and I don't know. I mean, it's really going to be interesting to see what happens with the, the next generation. Totally. When, when you and I have moved on. And we're just, we have our walkers. We're walkers. And we're following it with a live stream or the yeah. computer chip in our brain or whatever. Exactly. Uh, what the next generation is going to bring for mountain biking. Um, well, Leah, you know, I, you know, look, you are still very much a professional mountain bike racer. You're gunning for that. Thanks, Fred. Uh, Olympics, Tokyo. We're wishing you the best of luck. Thank you. Not all at all about... What comes next? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've definitely thought about it. I um, I think I have a couple irons in the fire, but um, obviously, you know, I started the Little Bell's Pro Ambassador Program, like, and so I would love to continue with that and work more with, um, you know, the program that we founded, like, 11 years ago. I mean, that's a that's a great avenue for me, but who knows? Like, who knows what will come of it? Jump off that bridge whenever you Yeah, exactly. Well, Leah, thanks so much. Best of luck in the next couple of months. Thank we you. Will, we will keep following you here on bellnews.com. Awesome. Thanks for having me. 